Hey everyone, welcome to the Restoring Rapport podcast. My name is Seth Hensley and this is a podcast about reclaiming the place of priority relationship is providentially intended to hold in your life. You know, we live in a world where community is far too often pushed to the back burner in favor of less important things, but the good news is that it doesn't have to stay this way. As believers, we have the choice to prioritize connection in our life every day and to live face-to-face with God and people. In this show, I'll be number one, sharing research which supports the importance of relationship, number two, giving you tools to help you improve your interpersonal connections, and number three, sharing writings that I have done in the past on the importance of community. It is my sincere hope that the content presented in this podcast equips you to better serve and love others. To access my past and future articles, subscribe to my YouTube channel, or purchase a copy of my books, visit homeschoolerponderings.blogspot.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 22 of the Restoring Rapport podcast. I'm super excited to have you guys here today. It's been a while. Uh, Once again, that is kind of attributed to the fact that I'm smack dab in the middle of a semester and I've got 21 credit hours this year or this semester, finishing up my degree. Next semester, I will be completely done. Once again, completely done. Could not be more excited about that. Um, I'll be finishing my uh, clinical next, my my primary internship next semester, and after that, I will be a licensed educator. So I'm really excited to be um, done with that and just working at a stable job and not, you know, just done with the school season for a time. Not that I won't go back; I still plan to go back for my master's in marriage and family therapy, but it will just be nice to have a break, honestly. Um, But anyway, today I've got a really special episode planned out for you guys. I'm going to be doing a reading of an article called A Man's Place is in the Home. Um, It's one of my favorite articles of all time. One of the best things I've ever read. It's by a man named Trevin Wax. And you can find it on thegospelcoalition.org. And it's just got so many good things uh, embedded within this article. I've used them in so many other places. A lot of my vlogs that I used to do several years ago, I talked about some of this stuff. Um, It's been in my blog posts. Several things uh, in the article have been uh, or will be published in one of my books coming up. Um, He just does so much stuff with um, looking at how family has been done and how it should be done. And he kind of uh, redraws the attention of the reader to the scriptural model rather than you know, the 1950s model or the 2020 model of family. And I just really appreciate his work, particularly about drawing attention to what men should be doing in the home. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and start reading. He opens with a quote from the Odyssey. But time and again, Odysseus turned his face toward the radiant sun, anxious for it to set, yearning now to be gone and home once more as a man aches for his evening meal when all day long his brace of wine-dark oxen have dragged the bolted plowshare down a fallow field. How welcoming, how welcome the setting sun to him, the going home to supper, yes, though his knees buckle struggling home at last. G.K. Chesterton's famous quip, ten thousand women marched through the streets shouting, we will not be dictated to, and went off to become stenographers, has not endeared him to feminists, for whom it smacks of radical sexist reactionaryism. But while I do not question the quip, I do question if it is sufficiently radical. For what, I ask, were those ten thousand men doing, such that they needed those ten thousand stenographers? For as long as the present generations can recall, it has been the norm that a man should leave not only mother and father, but also wife and children and cleave to his desk. And while the two do not thereby become one flesh, the unity of man and 
desk at times eclipses that of man and wife. But it was not always so. In 1820, the earliest date for which I am able to find reliable statistics, some 2.1 million men in the United States worked in farm occupations, quote-unquote, a full 72% of the workforce. It is worth remembering that by 1820, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, siphoning men off the land and spitting them into factories, meaning that there were n- meaning that we were to possess reliable, meaning that we were we to possess reliable statistics going back a little further, we would find a considerably higher percentage of men working the land. A significant percentage of the remainder would have been employed in trades, blacksmiths, wheelwrights, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. Many of these, especially in the smaller towns, would have worked out of shops attached to their own homes, as was common. And while some of those working in farm occupations would have been working as hired labor, most would have been tilling the fields of their own ancestral homelands. In other words, until quite recently, a huge percentage of men worked, as we now say about a privileged class of telecommuters, quote-unquote, from home. And that's just kind of an amazing statement. If you think about it, only in recent years have we, has it become normal for men to work completely separate from their home for eight hours a day. That has not been a regular uh, routine throughout history. It's not been a pattern. Um, certainly wasn't the case, um, you know, a long time ago. Uh, a lot of, in biblical times, even even more recently than biblical times, you know, um, this this article talks about a change happening in the 1820s, um, before the 1820s, but and obviously he referenced the Industrial Revolution there. But anyway, on with the article. There are fantastically good arguments in favor of this arrangement. Not least of these are the psychological and spiritual health of a man and the unity and stability of his family. Any man in a happy marriage with children who has the good fortune, as I have, to work from home will know what I mean. There is a wholeness that comes from having one's whole life revolve around that most vital fact of one's identity, one's vocation as husband and father. A man working from home is a man with an undivided heart. This is especially true if his spouse is also at home, for then or for there then opens up the possibility of forging an intimate partnership of effort, two souls striving for one goal, united in one mind, one heart, and one flesh. Camille Pagila has recently complained that because children are no longer taught the rudiments of history, most people are incapable of conceiving that anyone has ever lived any other way than the way in which we currently live, or any other way of living could possibly have anything to recommend itself. Our chronological snobbery is such that our forebears are deemed inferior merely because they did not live precisely as we do, not having, for instance, the cleverness to invent air conditioning or advertising or abortion. History is therefore conceived of as a dauntless march to the pinnacle of human progress, also known as the present. Most of us are aware that the sexual revolution and the secondary migration of women from the home which preceded it, but no one considers the primary migration that preceded both, and in which set the stage. Conservatives are fond of pointing out that how an autocratic feminism that urged women to join the workforce at pain of being branded traitors to their sex has frightened or has fragmented, fragmented sorry, the family. But they are not nearly conservative enough. They have forgotten how the mass movement of men from the household, often under coercive external pressure, drove in the first wedge. 
If the subject ever comes up, it is assumed that it was necessary and unavoidable. But usually we don't even get that far, because our historical memory is so short we cannot conceive that things ever were or still could be otherwise. Perhaps there is even Perhaps there even is something to, to be said of the remnants of a toxic masculinity, quote-unquote, which can only think of its women in terms of the caricature, caricature of the 1950s housewife, but which never thinks to turn its critical gaze back upon itself. Some, it seems, still do consider the 1950s housewife as the crowning archetype of femininity. This is not so. She, poor creature, and I speak of the collective caricature and not its individual incarnations, was a freak of nature, a curious experimental specimen cultured in a petri dish. The 1950s housewife found herself squeezed into the airless space between two epochs, between the old economy with its farms and household shops and the new with its steel skyscrapers and computers. She played the part of the housewife as in a pantomime, hoovering the floors, catching up on her soaps and donning high heels to dress and donning high heels and a dress to welcome home her man after a hard day's work flirting with his secretary. What a different what a difference between this evanescent, eviscerated figure and the commanding mistress of the old household, skillfully managing the myriad of details in the lives of her husband, children, and in many and in a family of means, household staff, whilst often contributing directly and meaningfully to its solvency. It is no wonder that this shadow of femininity yearned for something more and settled upon what appeared from afar to be a more substantial world inhabited by her husband. Wow. So they're saying basically the role of woman today has been so uh, dumbed down to and um, made less than what it really is that the, you know, the the role of the men have today, as as flawed as it is, seems appealing because we have so just shredded and fragmented what it really means to have a, a role as a female. Um, that's, that's a pretty profound statement too. Hi guys, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you about a few opportunities that you have as listeners to support this show. Number one, you can rate and review this podcast. Every rating and review I get helps promote my podcast on distribution sites. If you haven't already done so, it takes 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a written review. Number two, you can become a financial supporter of this podcast with a monthly contribution. Just scroll to the bottom of the show notes found in the description of each week's episode and click on the link labeled support this podcast. Many, many thanks to all my past and future supporters, and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of this episode. <clears throat> Back to the article. Well-meaning Christian wives are sometimes want to unearth the syrupy advice aimed at the 1950s good housewife. Here, for instance, is a brief expert excerpt of some such advice that has made its way widely, made its rounds widely on Christian blogs. <clears throat> when your husband gets home from work, have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Speak in a low, soothing voice. Allow him to relax and unwind. Certainly, don't speak first or complain about your day, but instead try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to unwind and relax. Much of this advice has the advantage of being deliciously countercultural, recommending an ethos of radical self-sacrifice that subverts the excesses of feminism and bears at last a superficial consonance with Paul's epistolary advice to wives. And yet, while there is certainly something to be said for correcting the swing of cult the cultural pendulum, there is a sinister side to this good housewifely advice. Namely, it assumes that the world of husband and wife have scarcely anything to do with one another. 
This is especially true of the husband's world, that higher orbit in which he spins and from which he daily designs to descend into the nucleus of the home and into which the wife can only peer uncertainly. Indeed, it is curious that while the mockery of this caricature of femininity has long been common sport, so little attention has been paid to the equally questionable caricature of the 1950s husband with his briefcase, brown suit, cant political opinions, thinly veiled misogyny, and tragic cluelessness about the lives of those closest to him. It is here that we find the genesis of that low, I'm sorry, it is here that we find the genesis of that now ubiquitous clown of modern media, the weak and hapless fa father who is an obstacle and an embarrassment to his children, a man who knows how to manage spreadsheets and his expense account but little more. If a woman's choice to self-sacrificially adopt the role of quote-unquote good housewife might offer a kind of corrective to the radical individualism of feminists, we ought to wonder where we might find the companion quote-unquote good husband handbook the one in which men are enjoined upon arriving home to resist the temptation to recede into the inferior fog of their weariness and to turn on the TV and instead to be present with their wife and children. If we simply accept that the Industrial Revolution drove men into factories and from there the techno technological revolution drove them into cubicles, it is time to expose the hidden costs which both were, the hidden cost upon which both were predicated. It is quite simply untrue, historically speaking, that for the average man to wake up every day and to leave his home and wife and children, not as an exception in time of war or other necessity, but as a universal norm, and to start spending the better part of his life in an office working amidst perfect strangers in an, is an anomalous thing. We are so accustomed to scoffing at the anachronistic arguments against women's working in what was once the sole domain of men that we have forgotten to ask how it is that nearly all our men got there in the first place. He is just drilling home this point that we have been so busy, you know, uh, uh, with the whole feminism thing, with the whole women in the workplace or in the home thing that we've forgotten to ask why it is that men are actually not in the home. Why it is that men are spending the majority of their waking hours doing something other than maintaining their family. And that is not God's design. That is not been what's been done throughout history and biblical times. That is not um, the best way. It is not the best way. And I think he's just making that point beautifully here. I know it can be kind of dense. His writing is really dense, but it is. I think it's beautiful the way he words things. And also, he's just got such a good point. It's like he has a beautiful way of wording it, but he also has a great point, and that's why I love this article. <clears throat> so let's let's resume. Let us dis let let us at least disabuse ourselves of the notion that it was voluntary. Dickens first memorialized the sufferings and degradation of the first wave industrial industrial workers. Later, Steinbeck, in The Grapes of Wrath, scathingly dramatized the Depression-era travails of the American farmers whose lands were rep repossessed and turned over to industrialists when they defaulted on their loans. Within a few decades later, later in The Unsettling of America, Wendell Berry exposed the federal policies of the United States that deliberately drove small farmers off the land in favor of large-scale industrial enterprises. The process continues today. <clears throat> And yet, if the gleam of highly efficient factory farming seemed irresistible in the 1950s, surely it is less so now when some 1% of our population and rapidly aging, and a rapidly aging one at that, is engaged in the one industry that keeps the other 99% of us alive. 
While it is true that we oughtn't to romanticize pre-industrialism, which for all its cultural vitality suffered rampant warfare, disease, and child mortality, neither must, must we romanticize the industrial and technological revolutions with their callous and personal and antiseptic cult of efficiency. We may never be able to return en masse to the farms or workshops, but there is va value to be had merely in mourning for what has been lost. A process by which reminds a process which reminds us of what might yet be. A man working his own fields was his own master, the sweat of whose brows was poured out visibly, directly, and creating a home. His partner was not an impersonal investor, but flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And the subordinates alongside whom he toiled were not querulous strangers, but were his own children, fruit of his loins. This is what has been lost in the two-century-long transformation of house as home into house as way station, that luxurious modern repository for food, a bed, and distraction, barely inhabited by a loosely-knit community of transients for the sake of which we shoulder a lifetime's servitude to debt. Chesterton was the great champion of the romance of domesticity. For this he has been deemed a sexist reactionary, I would like to rescue him from the, the charge simply by observing that a great deal of what he wrote about women could be and should be applied to men. Consider, there have been household gods and household saints and household fairies. I am not sure that there have been any factory gods or factory saints or factory fairies. The place where babies are born, where men die, where the drama of mortal life is acted, is not an office or a shop or a bureau. It is something much smaller in size and much larger in scope. And while nobody would be such a fool as to pretend it is the only place where people should work, or even the only place where women should work, it has a character of unity and universality that is not found in any of the fragmentary experiences of the division of labor. This is a typical example of Chesterton's argument that, by and large, women's lives were impoverished when they advanced, quote-unquote, from the broad and mystical realm of the home into the narrow and main mundane world of the office. And I would say the, the same thing applies to men. <clears throat> it seems obvious, however, that in the realm of the office, it seems obvious, however, that if the realm of the office is so narrow and mundane, which, if it is a rhetorical exaggeration, points to the truth, then it must be equally as narrow and mundane for the men as for the women. And if it is a terrible impoverishment for a woman to go from being the goddess of the hearth to the purvoyer, I don't even know that word, purvoyer of widgets, certainly there is something equally tragic for men to have gone from being the master of fields to the pusher of pencils. Wow, he's so... His writing is just so good. Um, anyway, I, hopefully by now you're, you're starting to see like why this is one of my favorite articles of all time. It's just so well written and its point is just so in line with what Restoring a Poor is all about. Syncing up um, both the presence of a father and mother in the home and prioritizing relationship in a world where, you know, the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, the workplace are demanding your attention and have demanded the attention of people in the past. And there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something that tries to draw your attention away from the home. But we argue here that God's purpose is for men and women to prioritize their family and their marriage. And that nothing, quote unquote, or I'm sorry, I repeat, nothing should get in the way of that. Because when you let stuff get in the way of that, you're, you're, you're uh, destroying God's priority system. You're messing up the way God designed the world to work and there are consequences. <clears throat> 
Back to the article. When it comes to the differences of men and women, Chesterton argues that the women are generalists and men are specialists. There is something about men that has tended towards a narrower specialization of effort and that has always been more outward looking. The hearth has ever been the dominant domain of men. The field and the forge are intimately connected to and draw their life from the hearth, but they are nevertheless apart in the peripheries of the homestead. Men are naturally men naturally tend toward the peripheries, and at time by necessity or innate drive to the far extremities as adventurers, statesmen, soldiers, and sailors. I actually disagree with that, but anyway. Nevertheless, this drive to the extremities has only been healthy insofar as it referred back to the hearth. That is true. A man who has forgotten the hearth has forgotten his heart. He's a man adrift at sea, and there is no telling upon what alien shore he may be washed up or to what mischief he may then direct his powers. That is a... Dang, that quote is so good. Anyway, <clears throat> it, may be it may not be immediately possible to change the place they work, but it is possible to change the way they work and live. That is, with an eye always to the locus of which all their work ought to be referred the home odysseus wandered far as men are apt to do and at times allowed his heart to wander with him as men are also apt to do but there was that in him which was akin to the sturdy rooted trunk of the olive tree that formed one of the four posts of his marital bed a symbol of fruitfulness and permanence in the heart of the home and that some work and that something worked to his salvation referring all of his wanderings labors and sufferings back to that center and ever enticing back to his rightful place that rightful place of every married man in the home and that's the end of trevin wax's article um i really hope you guys have enjoyed it um there's just very little that I disagree with throughout the whole entirety of the article. There were things that I disagreed with. I didn't point them all out, but overall, I just think that it's just such a good article. It addresses what's critical for people to address in, in this day and age where the family's being shredded apart and, and uh, demented and mutated into something that is not God's original design. It's so important to get back to the the roots of what it means to be a healthy family in God's eyes and in people's eyes as well. Um, so I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Once again, if you enjoy the content that we put out, be sure to follow the Restoring Report podcast on Instagram. We post quotes regularly there pertaining to marriage and family therapy. Do not forget to rate and review the show. That helps us grow. The more people that... Um, rate and review the more people that find the show and that um helps us get more more content out there about the importance of um family in god's in god's design so thank you so much for listening you guys and we will talk to you next time